earlier this year. So really it started at the end of last year. Uh, Roanoke Rapids Schools launched a mentoring program that they uh, started inside a Challoner Middle School. And so there were several of us from the community that got to be part of this kind of inaugural attempt at this mentoring program at Challoner Middle School. And so I, I uh, chose this sixth grade student. And so he and I have been meeting uh, 25 minutes a week, and we've been doing that all semester. And one of the things that he told me early on as we got to know each other is that he wanted to be a police officer. Which really struck me. He wasn't a kid that I would think would want to be a police officer. But he said, I want to be a police officer. I said, would you know any police officers? You know, not really. So I know some police officers. So just this past week, I had uh, Captain Gordon Williams. Maybe some of you know Gordon Williams. He came to Eleanor uh, when I was meeting with my students, sat down, had, all, you know, had full uniform on, and talked to my student about what it meant to be a police officer. Now, you might get a kick out of the fact that one of his questions, because I had my student come up with the questions he wanted to ask, uh, one of them, uh, many of them were good and, and, and rich questions, but one of them was, do you really eat donuts every morning? And, and, go, and, and Captain Williams said, uh, not unless they have filling inside. And so, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, way to break the stereotype. All right, so um, so here's what here's why I want to tell you uh, why I'm telling you about that story, of what happened this week, because it was so cool to see this this police officer, Captain Williams, give this young man who comes from a bit of a difficult home life, give this young man a vision for what life can be like beyond these years in middle school, beyond those years in high school, gave him a vision for what, it can, what life can be like beyond these difficult years. Because my student lives in a bubble. I mean, he only carries so much life experience and not good in his home. And yet Captain Williams was able to bring that student into a reality far beyond what this student could see. And I thought as I was watching Captain Williams do this for this student, just give him this vision of something beyond his life now to help really give this, give this kid you know, a reason to, 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 to behave and to do well in school. As he gave this kid this vision of what can be, I thought, this is exactly what the Bible does for us. And then I thought of this very long quote. And I'm warning you, there's just a lot on the screen today, but I had no other way. I just got to give it to you. There's this really long quote from this book by Eugene Peterson. The book is called Eat This Book. Eat This Book is not like eat his book. It's eat the Bible. Um, and in here, Eugene Peterson gives an explanation of what's happening, what, what should happen when we read the Bible. Now, I'm, we've got the quote up on the screens. But it's like, man, I want to I read that quote again. This quote is so important to me that we actually have it up on our website because I, I brought this quote out now a couple of other times in the past. And so you can go to east10street.org and go to the resources tab. And under resources, there's a, a link called quotes. This quote is on that webpage. All right. Let's read what Eugene Peterson says about the Bible. We need a complete renovation of our imaginations. We are accustomed to thinking of the biblical world as smaller than the secular world. Well, telltale phrases give us away. We talk of, quote, making the Bible relevant to the world. 
as if the world is the fundamental reality and the Bible is something that's going to help it or fix it. We talk of, quote, fitting the Bible into our lives or, quote, making room in our day for the Bible. As if the Bible is something we can add on or squeeze into our already full lives. As if we personally participate in the scripture-revealed world of the empathetically personal God, we not only have to be willing to accept the strangeness of this world, that it doesn't fit our perceptions or tastes, but also the staggering largeness of it. Love that phrase. The staggering largeness of the world of the Bible. We find ourselves in a truly expanding universe that exceeds anything we learned in our geography or astronomy books. Our imaginations have to be revamped to take in this large, immense world of God's revelation in contrast to the small, cramped world of human figuring it out. What we must never be encouraged to do, although all of us are guilty of it over and over, is to force Scripture into our experience. Our experience is too small. It's like trying to put the ocean into a thimble. What we want is to fit into the world revealed by Scripture, to swim in this vast ocean. That's exactly what Captain Williams was doing for this student. The goal wasn't to try to get Captain Williams to figure out what it was like to live as a sixth grader in a difficult home. The goal was to give this sixth grader a vision of what life looked like in this much larger world beyond middle school. That's what we were doing. So we were, I mean, if you think of it, like visually, we're trying to get the student, we're trying to take him out of his small, cramped world and bring him into this large ocean of reality. That's exactly what the Bible does for us. The Bible, the Bible is very clear. Our experience is way too small. And God has this vast revelation of what is real. And I want to go up into that reality, or I want to go into that reality. I want to try to fit the Scriptures into the symbol of my little life. How arrogant to think I've got it all figured out. That's exactly what the Psalms are doing, too. Just recently I came across this quote in a, by one commentator. I, I have to share the quote with you. It's much shorter, but it's what the Psalms are doing. Take a look. This commentator says this. They, that is the psalmist, the psalmist, they put their undeviating understanding of the greatness of the Lord alongside our situations so that we may have a due sense of the correct proportion of things. Every feature and circumstance of life is transmitted into the Lord's presence and put into the context of what is true about him. The psalmists start with the idea that God is ultimate reality. It is His greatness, His holiness, His amazingness. Like, that's where we start, and then we take every experience of life up into His experience. And then we see it for what it really is. It gives us perspective. Isn't that so much of what life is about? Perspective. Here the psalmists, what the psalms do is they give us ultimate perspective. And I love the way the scholar says it here. That we are transmitting our small little life, every little circumstance we have. Not that they're not insignificant. Oh, they're very significant. But we take it and we then, we are transmitted into His presence. His fundamental reality. 
And then we see things in a different light. And one of the things that I think we need to be taking into the presence of His holiness is some of those concerns we carry with us as Americans. As Americans, most of us, assuming that Emory doesn't have a felony, all of us get to vote. Emory, if you do, it's really uncomfortable. I'm so sorry. Okay. I know Don does, but like you, I mean, I didn't. Okay. All right. All right. I was just joking about all that. But if I just spoke truth, I'm so sorry. Um, okay. Listen. So here, here's the thing. As Americans, we all get to vote. And because we have, we have the, the, the right to vote, all of us as Americans are engaged in the political environment in a way that a lot of people around the world are not allowed to be involved. And so we get really caught up in the trajectory, the trend, the, the direction our country, our state, our city, our town is going. We get very invested in this. And so we spend a lot of time watching political commentary and analysis. And we get really whipped up, at, you know, in election season. Have you driven on a Roanoke Rapids street without seeing a political sign? No, it doesn't exist. Everybody's got a political sign. You want a sign? You want a sign? Here's your sign. Everybody's got a sign. Why? Because we're in election season. And the way you get elected is you've got to whip people up into excitement so they'll vote for you. This is, this is what it means to be American. And what happens often is when your person doesn't win, that means the country's going to pot. But when your person does win, everything's good and we're on the right track finally. And man, we can get really upset about all of this. I don't know about you, but I find that sometimes i got to step back because I get really excited about this stuff. And I don't mean excitement like I'm like joyful. I mean like I, my passions get uh, it gets stirred up. That's part of what it means to be American. But we've got to take that into the holiness of God. And this isn't just an American problem. It's a human problem. Humans have always had to deal with their leaders. It just so happens Psalm 2 has something to say about all this. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me there. We won't be putting the psalm up on the screen so you can listen. Or you can read along. Psalm 2. I'm using the New International Version, uh, the NIV. Psalm 2. We're going to read the whole psalm. We're in this series walking through the psalms. We'll take a break after uh, a season in the psalms. And, and as you know, we'll, we'll start studying the gospel according to Luke. Psalm 2. We'll take some natural breaks along the way, okay? So walk with me as we, as we walk through the psalm. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Alright, we're going to stop right there, right after verse 3. Right out of the gate, I think you're noticing what we're dealing with here as an international conspiracy. Okay? This is one instance where we can talk about conspiracy, and it's biblical. Alright? This is an international conspiracy. The kings of the earth have banded together in order to come against the Lord and His anointed. Now, Lord here is talking about the God of Israel. We're talking about the God of Israel. And then the anointed one here, the anointed one is, is, is the king. This is the king of Israel. The king who has been anointed. And we'll talk more about that in a second. 
but, but so we're talking about the God of Israel and the king of Israel that he has anointed, that he has chosen as the one to rule his people and lead them in righteousness. So the kings of the earth are conspiring to come against the God of Israel and the king that he has put on the throne to lead his people in righteousness. They're coming up against his uh, coming up against the king, the Lord. Now, there are a lot of questions among commentators. Scholars have been debating this for a long time. When would this psalm have been used by the people of Israel? Like, when did this show up? Is this like you go to synagogue and you read Psalm 2? I mean, most scholars believe that this psalm would have been recited in a public forum, much like what we're doing here, but it would have happened, uh, some say it would have happened, at the moment of the coronation of a new king. So, when they when they crowned a new king in Israel, they this psalm would have come up. It would have been part of the inaugurational uh, the, the inaugural ceremonies. Okay, some say there was an annual festival where every year at a particular time they would renew the covenant with the king, and they would recite the psalm. We don't know. We don't know when this would have been recited. What we do know is it's, it is that this would be considered a royal psalm. It's saying something about how Israel understands their king, understands their human leader. That's what we need. That's the takeaway. Whenever this was recited, however it worked, in, in the worship and among the people of Israel, this is a royal psalm. There are many others that we're going to study. But it has something to say about how they understand their king. That's, what, that's the takeaway. All right? Now we keep going. So we know there's an international conspiracy. It's against the God of Israel, against a king he's anointed. We're going, to learn some, we're going to learn what happens next. Pick up verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So two things are going to emerge in those three verses for me. I want to at least acknowledge, we'll just highlight. Number one, there is such a thing as divine anger. There is such a thing as wrath. That God has wrath. Now, but it's not a wrath that's arbitrary. If you've ever studied the, the Greek and Roman gods, you, they're quite fickle. You really don't know when they're going to get angry and when they're going to strike you with lightning and life will be over. Like, you just don't know. So you've got to do things to help them, like, keep them appeased. This is not the God of Israel. The God of Israel is jealous for His glory and His name. And here you have an international conspiracy to overthrow the dominion of the Lord. Yes, there is divine anger. There is wrath. So, like, we just don't we just don't have this like we don't have this God who just like frolics in fields with daisies and just is just this real nice God. Oh, He is compassionate, slow to anger, but never doubt that He is powerful, and He has anger when His name is being is being uh, when when people are rebelling against His name. All right, because that's mixing up the order of things. You're the creature. He's God. And when that order gets mixed up, there is anger. It would be the same thing if someone tried to take your spouse from you. There would be anger. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. There's jealousy for his glory. The other thing I notice is this thing that God laughs and he scoffs. Isn't that interesting? And then like, you don't think of God like just laughing and scoffing at someone. Now, this isn't God being flippant. As one commentator says, here's what's going on. I like the way he said it, so we'll use it here. Uh, come back one slide. Yep. Come, there you go. That's, that's all right. That's all right. 
the intended message, this laughing and scoffing, the intended message remains clear. God's power is so great and his position so secure that he need not take any coalition of human powers as serious threats to his rule. Like, they, you can have every king in the world come against the Lord. The Lord will laugh at that. Not laughing by being flippant, laughing at the idea that in any way you're going to overthrow the dominion of the God of Israel. That's just not going to happen. No one will overthrow his purposes. That's why the language of laughing and scoffing is trying to get at, really, the stupidity of their rebellion. Now let's see what happens next. Now what's going to happen in verse 7 is there's going to be a shift. The narrator, the psalmist, will recede here, and the king's voice will now come forward. So you've got to think here. The king, the one being crowned, is the one now speaking. Here it is. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron rod. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Okay, we'll stop verse 9. So now the king proclaims what God, the God of Israel, has said to him. And he has said, you are my son, I am your father. That's how intimate the relationship is. And I will ensure you rule the world. You will actually destroy these rebellious kings. And the earth will be your possession. The king is, is now repeating the promise God has given to him. Now, the king of Israel, the one that, that the one here in verse seven through nine, is going to be the rightful heir of the throne of David. It will be the one whom God has promised to keep covenant. And so the echo here, the thing that like we need to just remember is there's like this echo way in the back. There's a promise that's sitting behind that. Because when when Israel was given a king, that first king didn't work out, Saul. And God then chose David. I think all of us know that name, King David. He chose David. And he said, when he chose David, I'm making an eternal covenant with you and your descendants. And from you, I'm, I will put someone on your throne forever and ever to, to establish his kingdom. And so Israel was always hopeful for that king, that king that would reign and, and put put the nations in submission to the rule of the Lord. I, got you, I just want you to see the echo, because I want you to know where that's coming from. Like, where's the language of, you are my son, today I, I am your father? Where's that coming from? It's not coming from Star Wars. It's coming from 2 Samuel. Verse, I just came up with that. I just thought, as I said it, you're my father. It's okay. All right. Here it is. 2 Sam, verse, uh, 2, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 14. Here's the original promise to David. Check out how close it fits with Psalm 2. The Lord declared to you, that's David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so as the king, in this moment where they are, they, they're declaring who the king of Israel is, they hearken back to this promise to David. Because God promised someone sitting on the throne of David who will rule the nations. And they are repeating that promise in this moment as the nations conspire against the king and the Lord himself. 
The psalm ends this way. We'll pick up verse 10. We'll finish up. Therefore, we're back with the narrator. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son and He will be angry. Or, or He will be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right. Short story on those three verses. If you want a blessed life, you submit. You submit to the rightful king of Israel. You submit to the heir of David's throne. You want to be blessed? You submit to him. You find refuge in him. You kiss the son. If you don't, destruction. That's, that's the summary of those three verses. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with Psalm 2. Because it's been working out as, as you had the succession of kings uh, along the way through history. But there comes this moment. There comes this moment after all this time as the kings of Israel and Judah, the, 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 eventually you had the northern and the southern kingdom. But as you have these kings coming to the throne, the problem is none of them follow the Lord. One after one after one do evil. Sometimes they sometimes they follow the Lord, but most times they evil, evil, evil. They do evil. And there is this moment then when God's people are taken into captivity. Particularly Judah, the southern kingdom, the one that lasts is taken into captivity into Babylon. And the problem with going into captivity is you no longer live in the land and you no longer have a king. And so what happens is, is the Scriptures just don't go away. It's not like Psalm 2 just disappeared. You see, this might have been a psalm that was being declared in some type of renewal festival or when a, a new king was crowned. But when you get into captivity, you have no more crowning. You have no more king. And Psalm 2 becomes a psalm that looks forward to the day when God will finally bring a king from the line of David on his throne and the nations will be brought under submission. One day, Psalm 2 declares, one day that king's coming. That king's coming because the people have no hope. But Psalm 2 says the day's coming. And it actually begins to morph as a psalm of hope that God's going to do it one day. Here's what one commentator says. I tried to summarize it, but he even does it better. Psalm 2 became increasingly understood eschatologically, that is, in the future as a hopeful anticipation of the Davidic descendant who would, as Yahweh's anointed servant, establish God's direct rule over all humanity and the kingdom of God. If you do not like our current president, I guarantee you, you are waiting for 2024. And if you like our current president, you are hoping that 2022 doesn't go the way you think it's going to go and 2024 is not going to go the way it looks like it might go too. We've always got a future outlook on what might happen with our leaders. So can you imagine what happens when you, a people, are in captivity and you know God's going to do something? This psalm becomes a declaration. One day, O oh God, would you please destroy our, our oppressors and would you finally bring the king you promised to finally, finally, finally rule the nations? Would you please do that? You feel hopeful? I mean, again, I want you to put just how do you feel currently in the United States times 10 living in captivity away from your homeland? Here's the thing about Psalm 2, though. At some point, it stopped being a hopeful psalm, and it became reality. 
Because there was a moment where God did send the heir to David's throne. You guessed it. Jesus. Now I'm super excited about what's about to happen. Because Psalm 2 gets quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Both explicitly, like directly, and sometimes implicitly. This psalm comes for Christians, becomes for Christians the evidence that what God said He was going to do has finally happened in Jesus. And what they do is they quote Psalm 2 to say, See, it's happened. This is the King that would rule the nations. So i got to do it. And I'm going to tell you, I added a long scripture this morning because I was too excited not to give it to you. So if we go an hour late, don't you worry. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. We're just going to read the whole book of Revelation. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Here it is. At Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3. Check it out. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Code for Psalm 2 King has just showed up. The moment you hear this is my son, you immediately the echo of 2 Samuel 7. That God would establish his kingdom with the heir, with the heir of David. Immediately, this is my son. It's a direct line to Psalm 2. The king has arrived. At his baptism, there's a declaration. It's gotten real. And Psalm 2 is here. Then after Jesus dies on the cross and he's resurrected, these Christians go back into Psalm 2 and they're like, that's it? That's it? He was the king. And you know what? The nations conspired against him. And guess what? He beat the nations. He came back to the dead. And they quote Psalm 2 to declare they tried their best, but God wins. You guys see what happens. There's this moment where John and Peter, they're arrested, and then they're released. And they go to this house of, of Christians. These Christians are praying. These are like the early Christians. These are like the first ones. And these Christians are praying. And they're praying Psalm 2. i got to give it to you. This is the longer passage I added this morning. Acts, I, I, I knew... I, I knew it was possible, but I just couldn't stop once I was finalizing everything. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 29. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And well, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. And everything in them, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Here it is, Psalm 2. They're quoting scripture in the prayer. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they quote Psalm 2 and then they finish the prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable their servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They knew that one day, 
the kings would conspire against his anointed one. That happened when Jesus was in front of Herod and Pilate and the people called for his crucifixion. Jesus stood in front of the world. They conspired against him and they actually killed him. But then he came back to life. And now these Christians know, we know the way this works. God's anointed wins. So what they want is, give us the power that you know you have to speak this message boldly into the world. Because we know, we know you win. We know that you are king of the world. Caesar's not king. Pilate's not king. Herod's not king. There is one king. We follow that king. And now give us the strength to go forward. Because we know they'll try to get us. But we know they won't win. Oh, man. I look at that prayer and go, man, I want to pray like that. Here's what happens. Paul, later on, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he comes to Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. He goes into this area of Asia Minor and he starts preaching the gospel. For those of you who are studying Galatians with me, this is happening. This sermon happens among the Galatians, what we're about to quote. Here it is. Acts chapter 13, verse 30, uh, 32 and 33. The Apostle Paul preaching. Here it is. Psalm 2 showing up again. We tell you the good news, Paul says, what God promised for our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's code for, He's king. When He came back from the dead, He's king and He'll rule the world. One more. You know, in the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, gets Vision of so many things. One of those visions is what's going to happen when the sun returns. Now you remember Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. He also tells the sun that you'll have a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like the pottery. One day the sun's coming back in, with vengeance to remove all those in rebellion. Everyone who conspires against his rule. So when you get to the book of Revelation and you've got a vision of what the end's going to look like, John's vision starts to take the form of Psalm 2. Not quoted directly, but you're going to see the imagery all over it. Chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, they called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? No one can withstand it. You either kiss the King, you submit to the King, or you're going to be asking for, for mountains to fall on you. That's the way this is going to end. And who's the anointed one? Jesus. Jesus is the King. Israel looked for that king, and then he arrives, and he's reigning right now. That's Psalm 2. Now, I see two applications rolling out of this. Two applications. Okay, don't put the first one up. Okay. I'm like, ah, setting the stage. No, take it off. Take it off. Go back to Revelation. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm just, I got too excited. I want to harken back to that part of being an American. And we are in election season. And there are a lot of political analysis out there. And we're about to move into the 2022, 2022, 2022 election. 
And it appears this is going to be a pretty contentious election. And there's been some things happening in our country here recently with this leaked document out of the Supreme Court. And you've seen a lot of tension, a lot of fighting right now. And depending on where you fall on fall politically, you have hopes of the way this is all going to turn out. Here's the, here's the challenge to, to us as Christians, as Americans. It's not a long road from being involved and engaged politically to putting your hope in the politicians. We want good politicians. Let's be engaged and put good politicians in, in office. Let's vote for things that are moral and good and right. But let's be very careful that we don't ultimately lay our hope in those policies and in those politicians. Because it's not a long road from being engaged to putting your hope there. If your candidate doesn't get elected in t- this year and in 2024, I guarantee you it's going to be okay. Because we know who the king is. Could this country go to pot? Like, I mean, hell in a handbasket. Absolutely. This is usually the track of every nation. But it's not going to touch God's people. Now, it may make your life uncomfortable. But it's not going to touch you for eternity. So here's the thing I want to take away on this first application point. It's this. No matter how good or how bad things get in our country. We can be sure of this. The true king of the world, King Jesus, will not be overthrown and his plans will be accomplished, period. And I feel like we really need that. We really need to hear that from the scriptures. Even if Biden is reelected, it's going to be okay. And even if Trump is elected, it's going to be okay. And even if Ron DeSantis is elected, it's going to be okay. Even if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, it's going to be okay. And even if they switch and they go backwards, it's going to be okay. Now, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay and comfortable. I'm saying never leave the truth of the Scriptures that Jesus is King. Because the moment we put our hope The moment we put our hope in a politician or a policy or a court ruling, we've just taken our small little experience and we've tried to we've tried to we've tried to we've tried to take that and make it ultimate. It's like taking Psalm two and trying to put the symbol of our experience. That's just stupid. I hope it's okay to say stupid like that. I mean pastors can say stupid. If God can laugh and scoff, I can say stupid. That's what that is. Do not we should never do that. Second thing, this is the thing that's been laying in the background, sitting in the background. And man, it's going to have to be where we go. Because it, it's almost like we just bypassed it. But we better pay attention to this one. Take a look. Let's put up this next slide. We must avoid believing what the nations believe. That freedom means having no boundaries. Do you remember how the psalm even starts? The the, the kings of the world want to throw off the rule of the God of Israel. They actually see God's righteousness and his good law as something that is like chains. They don't want boundaries. And they say freedom is, ha- is when you don't have to have any boundaries. We better be very, very careful to never go that direction. Freedom lives in boundaries. A person who lives with no boundaries is a person enslaved. Do you know an addict in your life? I'm sure you do. 
I know an addict. We have something happening in my family right now where we have there's addiction. And it's having a deep impact on our family, uh, our extended family. You know what this person does? They use certain substances whenever they feel like it. And because of that, lots of people are getting hurt. That is no freedom. That is enslavement. So as one commentator puts it, it's this, this way. A little bit longer quote, but I think we've got to get it. The nations in this passage want to throw off the fetters and the chains of God, thinking of them as heavy shackles that weigh them down and prevent them from becoming what they want to be. In reality, however, those who submit their lives to God discover instead the bonds of relationship. Family ties that bind one closely into a relationship of loyal love. As in marriage, the bonds of commitment may represent, for one, a ball and chain of restriction, but for another, the boundless freedom of love. When you and I have boundaries, we thrive. When we throw off those boundaries and do what we want, we actually get oppression, enslavement. To do what you want is no freedom. To, this is, have you ever known a marriage where a spouse has walked out on the other one? Thinking that by getting someone else they want, they'll finally have freedom. And what do they find? It's no freedom at all. It's enslavement. Things break. They're ruined. What, what are the things that thrive? It's the things that grow up inside of boundaries. Which, by the way, can I give you just a little cultural commentary? This is the great problem with our understanding of freedom today in our country. Freedom has now become to mean do what you want. We actually are now declaring what is enslavement as freedom. That's never going to go well. That is not going to go well. Freedom is, always lives in the boundaries of virtue. By the way, our founders understood that. Hence, checks and balances in the system. All right. That was just a short aside. But for you, where in your life do you want to do what you want? Thinking that it's freedom. It is no freedom. Do not be like the nations. Here's your next step. Now, I had one next step, and then I added another next step. Rarely do I have two, but I had to go with two because there's two lines of application here it is. Here's your next step. Avoid political news this week. Uh-huh. I know who has a problem now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And or start each day by praying, thank you for boundaries, King Jesus. The goal of that prayer is just to get the words out of your mouth. Thank you for boundaries. I know you don't want boundaries. I don't want boundaries. I would love to do whatever I want, but I need boundaries. So I say, King Jesus, thank you for boundaries. Heaven will be full of boundaries. And it will be pure freedom. So, wherever you are, stop watching political news. If you get really fired up about that, just go a week. I promise you it's going to be okay. And when you come back in a week, they'll still be talking about whatever they want to talk about and whatever they want to put in front of you. It'll be okay, I promise you. And, and even if you never knew there was an election coming, just go vote. And I promise you there will be a result. I promise you. There will be a result even if you don't watch... The results come in on the night of the election. I promise you they're coming in. And it'll be okay. Do you see the point? My point is not, don't be politically engaged. Yes, be politically engaged. You've been given a vote that's part of God's sovereign will for our country. He has established that. But do not put your hope there. Fully there. If you do, you will be sorely disappointed. 
and you actually will forget who is king. All right, let me pray for us. Father, these two things just drive us. We are a people who need boundaries, and we are a people who need to constantly be brought up into your holiness to see our country and our state and our city from your perspective. And that is, there is a king. And you have established him. He is your son and you are his father. And so whatever happens here, we never forget that you are working everything to your sovereign purpose through the king, the lamb who was slain and who was resurrected. So help us to be wise in our political engagement. But we also pray that you would help keep our heart from idolatry. And that you would help us as a people to be people of boundaries. Who find blessedness in submitting to your Son. All of that from Psalm 2, we thank you. We pray in Him who is the King, Jesus. Amen.